John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So last week we began uh, our, our new series in the Gospel of John. Uh, we have titled this series, Behold the Lamb of God, and that title uh, is appropriate for this gospel because, because of John's purpose when he wrote this, and you remember what that purpose is, right? If you were here last week, I told you I'm going to ask you that probably every single time I stand up here. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs, signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, here's his purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we study this book, that's how we should be looking. He is presenting Christ as God in the flesh, the Son of God that has come to earth. And so it shapes how we study this. And that's why I will remind you as often as possible. Last week, we learned that John wanted us to see Jesus Christ as the Word, the eternal Word, who, who, who pre-existed all of His creation, who coexisted with God, and who was God. And that we saw that through Him, everything that has ever been created was created. And so He is the eternal Word, Lagos, if you remember from last week, Creator, who is sustaining all of creation at the same time. And so John says, believe that. Believe and trust in that truth, and you will have life in his name. And so we discussed all of that in pretty uh, detailed fashion last week. So if, if, you, if you missed it last week, the good news is we have an awesome media team who, who they prepare each week. The slides that you see as we put up verses and the slides for our worship they also have allowed us to be able to record everything with video and audio. If you go to the website, we did a lot of introductory work into this book. And so it's probably, I think I looked at it, the introduction part of it last week was about 15, 18 minutes. It's healthy to know this information. So you go back and take advantage of that opportunity. It's on the website. But we're going to continue this morning and pick up in verse 4, and we're going to go all the way to verse 13. And it's quite a task, but we're going to do it because this all revolves around John presenting Christ in a new way as the light of men. And that's what I've titled this message is the light of men. We'll see some implications for us. As I said last week, what John does is he, he records, he tries to communicate the identity of Christ then he records what Jesus said and what he did, and then shows us the response to that, 
to who he was and who he, what he did to prove his identity. And so this morning, that's what we'll see is he will communicate his identity as the light of men. And then we'll see three different responses. So first, let's take a look at the light. This is John chapter one, verses four through five. John wrote, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John wrote, in him was life. Remember, he's referring, when he says him, he's referring back to the word. And we know that to be Christ, because in verse 14, we'll get there next week, but it says the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and he walked with us. So he's referring to Christ. And he says, in him was life. All things were made through him, in verse 3. And without him was not anything made. So when John says in verse 4, in him was life, we might easily conclude that he's referring back to verse 3, that he's the creator. And you remember, we had this category, right? So everything that was made was made through him, and not one thing that was made was made without him. So in that sense, life is in him. And that's a true statement, but I don't think that's what John is trying to communicate here in verse 4. And I say that because the word that he uses for life, see in the Greek language, just like in our English language, we have words, multiple words to accomplish the same thing. Well, different, same word, different meanings, okay? Same thing in the Greek. There's multiple words for, for life. Now, if he wanted to refer to the physical life, the physical creation that he existed, he might have used the word bios, which probably sounds familiar because it serves as the root of our word biology, the study of life, the physical life. And there's also a word he could have used, suke, which is the mental, the psychiatry, But he used the word zoe, zoe, but zoe for us. And I think that's a beautiful word. I think that one day, if if any of you would use that name as a future Sulphur Community Church little girl, that would be awesome. Natalie has an aversion to the the letter Z for names, so that won't be happening for us. But I love that name, zoe. It's referring to spiritual life. So instead, what he does is he uses this word for the eternal, uncreated, divine life. In him, in the word, in Christ was this life, uncreated, eternal, and divine. And then he goes into this discussion about Christ as the light of men. He says, and this eternal, uncreated, divine life was the light of men. Now, what is he saying here? Once again, I think it helps to go look back at the original text. The word that he uses for light here, there were many that he could have used, but he uses the word phos. So, you know, if you think of phosphorus, uh, in other words, that start with phos. Sure. Um, All you science guys, yeah. Um, 
This was referring to the essence of light. This is light at its core. So it's not a lamp that gives off light. And it's not the rays of light. It's not even, like, I tend to think of, when I think of light, okay, what's the ultimate source of light? The sun. So when I think of light, I'm thinking of the sun, but it's not even the sun. It is light in its very essence. It's true identity, and that's who Christ is. He is the light of men. I find that interesting because we're going to get to study about John the Baptist this morning a little bit. I'm going to leave some, most of that for Blake in a couple weeks. But John the Baptist later on, I think it's chapter 5, John refers to him as a light. And the word that he uses there is not this word phos. The word he uses there is like a, a, a portable lamp that can be moved. And so you, you, you may be already starting to think about how we are children of the light and how we are portable lamps that put off the true essence of light that's in us, Christ. So when he says he was the light of men, John is saying that he is the essence of light that allows man to see, to know, to understand. In verse 3, we saw that the eternal word's relation to all of creation was through him. So we saw Christ and his relation to all of creation. Now we're looking at Christ and his relation to man. He is the light of men. He is the very essence of light that allows man to comprehend, to which we ask the question, what are we allowed to understand? What is he allowing us to comprehend? I think the answer lies in verse 5. John writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of Christ shines, and when I'm going through my Bible study methods, and I'm circling things, and I'm writing all over my piece of paper, I noticed that this is the first time we have a verb in the present tense. Remember in the past, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He created all things, and without Him was not anything created that was created. And all of a sudden here we have the light shines in the darkness. It is a present action. It shines in the darkness of the lost and dead world. John will use this conflict between light and darkness often throughout all of his writings. Paul wrote about this darkness often as well. In Romans 1.21, I know Blake, uh, a few weeks ago, leading into our study, went back to the heart of the gospel, and we read Romans and it says, Paul said, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, Paul in Ephesians 4 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding." alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The same letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes, comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. John says in verse 5 that the light of Christ shines in the darkness of the lost and broken world and that this darkness has not overcome it. It seems that John is making the point that there is opposition to the light. The light is shining into the darkness. And we kind of think of it as, okay, well, it's dark. We turn on the lights and it's like this peaceful, okay, all of a sudden there's light. But when light confronts darkness, there's tension there. That is not peaceful. Light eradicates darkness. And so it seems here that what John is saying is that no matter what the opposition does, no matter the, the, what darkness tries to do, it cannot put out the light. I think about illustrations from when I was younger where they would turn off the lights and try to make the room as dark as possible. And you would light a match. And that little match in a dark, completely dark room illuminates the room. You notice that light. You can see the light. I mean, by very definition, darkness is the absence, either in part or whole, of light. Where there is no light, there is darkness. At least that's the way it would seem. And that is a very true idea. And this is one of those where I'm studying and I'm saying, okay, some translations say overcome. The darkness has not overcome the light. And some of your translations right now, if you're looking at your Bible, it may say the darkness has not understood the light or comprehended the light. Well, those are two different things. So which is, what is John trying to communicate? The good news is I'm trying to help determine between two truths, right? They're both true statements. It's just which one was John trying to say? I think that in light of the immediate context, the better option is that the darkness has not understood it. And I say that because we're going into responses to this light. And we're going to see that there's one response that directly correlates with not understanding the light. They're both true. It, it just seems out of place that in verse 5, when we're talking about this is the light that shines in the darkness and the light of men, and then we see, okay, one man does this, and one man receives it, and one man rejects it, and the one that rejects it does not understand it, because naturally we don't, and the one that does receive it will get there in a little bit, but the one that receives it, it does so because it is of God, because man does not understand the light. To me, that's the better option. That doesn't mean anything, but... That's where I am at this moment. So if you want to go home and do some more study on your own, by all means, do it. I encourage it. So, the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Let's see the different responses to the light. This is who Christ is. How does man respond? Let's first look at the witness to the light in verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, I was telling Nally this week, I really feel like I'm, ha I'm, like, I feel like I'm having to correct some things too much. 
like, okay, my ESV translation says overcome. I feel like it says, I feel like it should be understood. Here it says a man, there was a man. I've scratched that out and I wrote in came. It's okay if was is there because I, I don't believe that when you read that, you're assuming that John the Baptist was just as the word was. That John the Baptist existed eternally just like the word was. I know it's a, it's a simple three-letter word, but to me, the significance of the fact that he came rather than was. And when you look at the original language, we talked about last week, when the word was, that word was me, and it is a past tense referring to eternal existence. Here, that's not the word that John used. He used a different word that more accurately portrays coming into existence. And I think that's significant because, look, this whole time we've been talking about the eternal word and the light of men. And all of a sudden, in verse 6, we see, and then there was a man. And you go down to verse 9, and we pick back up with the true light, which enlightens everyone. It seems like he just kind of throws in verses 6 through 8, and it's out of place. Why, in the middle of this discussion about the eternal word, the light of men, the true light, which enlightens everyone, are we talking about John the Baptist, a man? I think it's very interesting, the placement here. So let's see, what do we see with this placement? It looks to me like John has placed Jesus Christ side by side with a man, John the Baptist. And like I said, I'm going to let Blake get into more information about John the Baptist in a couple weeks. I'll just give you enough so you understand why this comparison or contrasting is significant. See, John the Baptist wasn't just a man. He didn't, John, the author, did not just pull John the Baptist out of thin air and like, okay, I just need to write about a guy. I want to put a man next to Jesus Christ. Let me see. I don't know, John the Baptist. He does this intentionally. One reason there was this, see, people had uh, put too much, they exalted John the Baptist a little bit too much in his day. So John the Baptist is saying, hey, look, let me show you what he looks like compared to Christ because he is not Christ. Similarly, Blake did that a few weeks ago, right? Look, I know Nehemiah looks really awesome and he's cool, but he's not Christ. I think that's what John is doing. John was a fulfillment to a prophecy. He was the one that came as a forerunner to Christ, prophesied about. And then in order to fulfill that prophecy... We read, we read in, I believe it's Luke, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. He had a divine purpose. And get this, he was the greatest man to ever walk the earth leading up to Christ. And I don't say that with hesitancy, because Jesus said that. If you look at Matthew 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verses 7 through 11, it says, And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. This is referring to John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So when John puts John the author, Apostle John, puts John the Baptist side by side here with Christ, what do we see? Let's work through verses 6 through 8 to find out. He starts off and he says, there came. John the Baptist came. In contrast, in the beginning, the word was. He says, there came a man. In contrast, in the beginning, was the eternal word, God. This was a man sent from God. In contrast, the word was God. John the Baptist was sent to bear witness about the light. Jesus Christ is the light. John the Baptist bears witness so that all might believe through him and his testimony. So he came to be the agent or the means of belief. Christ is the object of belief. Here we have the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. And when you look at him side by side with Christ, he pales in comparison. I mean, this is the ever-glorious, eternally existing, divine light of men. So let's ask this question. I thought it was fun for me to ask. No, not so much fun. Um, How do you think you would fare in that comparison? If you were to put yourself in that position compared to Christ. And then immediately, some of us, like when I first thought that question, I was like, okay, well, I suck and he's awesome, so that's all I need to know, right? But if, I, but if you actually think about it more and you actually meditate on that thought, you realize how great he is and how awesome he is and how much we suck and how, I'm sorry if I use that language and you don't like it, but and how terrible we are. Yet so often we try to be the Christ in our own life. We try to assume his role in our life, or we try to assume his role in the life of another, where we are trying to save them. Is that what John the Baptist did? Let's look at his response to the light in verse 8. The Apostle John wrote, He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This gospel was written so that we would see Christ. It was written so that we would see him and that we would get to know him as John had gotten to know him, that we would fall in love with him, that our view of Christ would be lifted up. I think we can all agree that when you look at John the Baptist in comparison with Christ, there's no comparison there. But I do think, so like, I know why John wrote his gospel, and I want to make sure that we see Christ exalted and not John the Baptist, obviously. That's not the reason John writes about him. 
And that's not, why, that's not what John the Baptist did. He wouldn't have wanted that. But I do think there is something we can learn from John the Baptist's example in his response to the light. His response was to bear witness. His response was to point people to the light. The apostle John makes it clear that he was not the light, and he does so because there were some who had viewed him. Oh, this is the prophet. See, it's really interesting how things worked out for us. We left off in Nehemiah, and we go right into John. Well, guess what? Who the last prophet was before John the Baptist? Ezra and Nehemiah. 400 years had gone by since they had heard from the Lord. So when you have a man all of a sudden coming and saying, Thus saith the Lord... He's got a following. It's been 400 years. And so he's out in the wilderness and he's wearing the clothing that he wore and he's eating the diet that he ate. And it sounds to us like a really crazy idea. This guy was nuts. He's out in the wilderness. And then, but people are going to him and they're following him. The Apostle John makes it clear he was not the light, but he was pointing people to the light. And if we have a proper view of Christ, I think it's going to result in a proper view of ourselves. And out of that, we're going to start pointing people to the light and not to ourselves. Do I need a... Uh, all right, close your ears. Static electricity. All right, does that work? We good? Okay. Now, this is an implied, this is not a command, right? Like, you don't see anywhere in here where he's describing John the Baptist saying, you're to point people to the light. That's an implication. But I think it's one that would benefit our church body to think about and consider, what are we bearing witness to? Who or what are we pointing people to? Are we pointing people to the, the church? Are we pointing people to people in the church? Are we pointing people to ourselves? That's not going to help anybody because they need to be pointed to the light. And the reason that the world needs witnesses to the light is very interesting. Okay, think about this question. If we're in darkness and someone turns on a light, do we really need someone to say, hey, there's the light? I mean, if you're in a dark room and somebody turns on a flashlight, I don't need to come to you and say, hey, there's the light. You can see it as long as you're not blind. See, therein lies the problem. Because the condition of man, it goes beyond just being in the darkness. But naturally, we are also blind we are spiritually blind in the darkness. So even when the light shines in the darkness, we can't see it. So that is why the world needs witnesses to point them to the light. And look, God could have done it another way. He is all-powerful. He is the creator of the universe. He could have determined another means. 
But he decided to use formerly spiritually dead and blind people to lead and point other spiritually dead and blind people in the darkness to the light. And so church, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, but if we fail at that task, if we fail at pointing people to the light, how then will they believe in what they have not heard? They're not going to hear and believe unless someone is preaching and pointing them to the light. So one response to the light is to bear witness about him, to have a proper view of him. Another response was, is rejection. In John 1, continuing in verse 9, John wrote the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So John refers to Christ as the true light, in contrast to John the Baptist, who was not the true light. This true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This light, this enlightenment, he, he instructs, he informs, he educates, he imparts knowledge. He enlightens. Once again, I had to make an interpretive decision here. The good thing is, I'm choosing between two truthful statements. So I'll give you both options, and you can go home and study on it and make your own opinion. The light enlightens everyone. The question is, who is everyone? Option one. When it says everyone, it means absolutely everyone who comes into existence, who comes into the world. So this would mean that everyone has some knowledge about the eternal light that is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Support for this can be found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, what truth are they suppressing? What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This would make sense if John was trying to communicate this truth because it encompasses all people right before he divides those all people into two groups, those who reject the light and those who receive the light. That would make sense in context. Option two. When it says the light enlightens everyone, John is referring to the actual spiritual enlightenment. That occurs when man receives the light. And that means believing, trusting. The emphasis here would not be on every single individual, as option one would imply, and as Romans 1 teaches. 
But when he says everyone or every man, John is referring to both Jew and Gentile. Not just Jew, but every man. And we see that a lot in Scripture as well. And when you think about John's audience, John is, he's writing this in Ephesus, and there are both Jew and Gentile present. So that would make sense. Paul says something similar in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Remember, we learn in Ephesus, when we learn this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how this was the great mystery revealed. That the Gentiles get to be a part of it. That those who were once far off are brought near. So both are true, and even more difficult this time, both kind of fit in context. As of right now, I lean towards option one, but I could be swayed the other way after a conversation at lunch. But I don't want you to miss this. That's an that's a interesting thing to look at and try to figure out because John obviously was trying to communicate something when he wrote that, but we should not be placing emphasis on who everyone is because the emphasis that John has been trying to communicate is not who receives enlightenment, but the source of enlightenment. He wants us to understand that this Jesus Christ was the true light that provides enlightenment. This is the testimony that John the Baptist was proclaiming. And then right after that, we see this very, it's, it's a sad progression here, okay? This is like, this isn't the high moment for us as the church, it results in one. John says he was in the world. Now, this is not referring to his coming into the world. We'll get there next week. John says he was, past tense, pointing back to his eternal existence in the world, how he created all things, he's sustaining all things, his divine power over everything, and also the fact that since the fall of man in Genesis 3, we've been looking forward to him, the promised Messiah who's going to come and crush the head of Satan and deliver us from captivity. Not only was he in the world, but the world was made through him. And we discussed that last week. The point is that Christ was eternally in the word, the world, the very world that he created. And then the sad reality. Yet the world did not know him. And then it gets worse. John says he came to his own. He came to his own people. And his own people did not receive him. He came to Israel. And they're the ones looking for him. And they did not receive him. Side note, let me give you some additional homework. Go home and study. I thought this was interesting. It does not say that his own people did not know him thought that was interesting. I don't know if that's significant. You can go home and check it out. 
The true light was in the world, the very world that was created by him, and the world did not know him. He even came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. Why does this happen? How can this happen? I mean, John is saying, world, this is the word. To the Jewish audience, this is the one you've been looking for. Here he is, Jesus Christ, and he got rejection. To the Greek audience, he's like, you've been trying to comprehend how all of this stuff works together. This logos that you refer to as the word that sustains all things and that puts order into the cosmos. Here he is. How does that result in rejection? Later on in John chapter 3, we see why. We read that this morning. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. How does rejection happen? It's because we, let's go ahead and throw us into this category of the world. I know we don't like to think of that all the time as Christians, as those who have been called out of the world, but we too were once part of this. You too were once in darkness. We love darkness. We love it. Why? Because we have evil works. And we don't want people to see that. I mean, most of the time, we don't even want to acknowledge that those exist. So we're we're trying to hide things in the darkness from ourselves. I mean, I've been in... The community group thing that we do here, that, that was new to us. And I've been in community group for, what, almost two years now, a year and a half? And what I know, I guess I'll call my community group out, what I know is that my community group, they have not fully exposed themselves. Like, you guys, I know you guys are hiding. You want to know how I know? Because I'm doing the same thing. We don't like our evil deeds to be exposed. And so we love the darkness. Because it isn't until we step into the light that we're fully exposed for who we are and what we've done. That is the nature of who we are. And we fight against that now that we've been redeemed and we've been called out of the darkness. But we still tend to step back into it. And so Christ, the very thing that can cure that disease that we have, that's brokenness, that is sinfulness, that light that we need, we hide from. 
So we are children of the light, but we're the same way, right? We love the darkness. This is the sad reality of the rejection of Christ. One of the saddest feelings that I think we can experience is unrequited love, unreturned love, where we extend love to someone and it is not returned. And in a group this size, I don't even have to ask the question. I'm confident that majority of you have felt this in one way or another. It occurs through breakups. It occurs in marriages. It occurs within the family, whether it's a a parent, a sibling, or some other family member. It can even occur through a friend, where you love a friend and that love is not returned. But think about this. Our ability to love is limited. And then you think about Christ and his ability to love, and it's infinitely greater than ours. So when love is not returned to him, we know what our pain feels like. Imagine what the unrequited love of Christ, where he lovingly sacrificed and gave of himself, and it's not returned. Christ created, and creation rebelled. Christ then entered into our world to save the rebellious creation. And what did he get? Rejection. Not just rejection, but hatred. And while all of this was part of God's plan, his eternal plan, because Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that's a sad reality. But there's a different response. There's one more. And that's the reception of the light. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here we find a a contrasting transition. He uses that word but to say, hey, look, we've been talking about those who've rejected. Now let's transition to those who have received. These that received left their place in darkness. And I don't know, maybe my picture of me leaving darkness was like I'm holding on to this pole that's in the darkness and like I'm like reaching out as far as I can without letting go of this pole that grounds me in the darkness because I don't want to be fully exposed. Those of us who have received the light, we've let go. As scary as that was, we've let go and stepped into the light and all of our nastiness and all of our... The thing is, like, we think it was hidden, but Christ saw it the whole time. We were in the darkness. That doesn't mean he couldn't see it. It just means we didn't. And so those of us who have believed and trusted in the light of the world, Jesus Christ, we have been given the right, the privilege to become children of God. We have been taken into his family. John goes on, goes on to clarify that while we are responsible for our response to Christ, this birth into the family of God is not our own doing. He says first that the children of God are not born of blood. This means that they, 
we don't inherit this. I mean, you think about the Jewish audience, that would, that would resonate with them. That they weren't born into this. The bloodline did not allow them to become a member of the family. That it wasn't because of blood. For us, it means just because we're raised in church by Christian parents does not mean that we're a member of the family. We are not born of blood. It is not based on race. It is not based on what nation you come from. It is not based on your social class or your economic class or anything else that we are physically born into. He also says that children of God are not born of the flesh, which means it is not of individual effort. That there's nothing that you can do to birth yourself into the family of God. And then when he says it is, we are not born of man, there's also nothing that I can do for you. That others' efforts can't get us there. We, I can't pray you into the family of God. I can pray for you, and I can pray that God would open your eyes while you're blind, give you spiritual sight, and take you out of the darkness. I can pray for that, but my prayer alone still requires God to do an act. There's nothing that others could do for us. But this birth, he says, it's not, it's not of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of the will of man. It is of God. And here is one of the great mysteries of salvation. That man is responsible for responding to the light. But God is sovereign over that. And how do those two things work together? Can't give you that answer, but both exist. Scripture is clear. Man is responsible for receiving this light, but without the divine grace and mercy of God giving us new life, without the Holy Spirit opening our spiritually blind eyes, we can't respond. I'll leave that there for now and let you go home and wrestle with that too. So where does that leave us this morning? Once again, John has opened up, he's rolled back the clouds and he's opened up heaven. He says, look, I want you to see Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He is the life and the light of men that shines in the darkness. We should view him accordingly because that's who he is. And when we do so, I think we'll have a proper view of who we are. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, let's understand that we were in darkness and we were blind. We were without hope. That even when the light shone in the darkness, we couldn't see it. So recognize this morning that the fact that you were now called children of light, recognize that with humility this morning, that that was not of your own doing. That was of God. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, let me tell you why you should. Because Christ is, he's existed eternally. And he left the comfort and the glory that he shared with the Father to enter into our mess. 
Why? Why would he do that? Sometimes when we're singing songs and we're praising God and we're, we're proclaiming what Christ has done for us, how many of you respond that way? Where you say, but why? There's nothing good in me. Why would you do that for me? So if you haven't trusted in Christ yet, understand that there is nothing good in you. There's nothing good in any of us. But while we were in the darkness, and while you're in darkness, and you have all these evil deeds that you're trying to hide, Christ sees that and he says, I still love you. I love you. I love you so much that I'm willing to pay the penalty that you deserve for those evil deeds. Look, Christ lived a perfect life. He never committed an evil action. He never thought an evil thought. And he's God in the flesh, and he came and said, I love you so much that I'm going to pay that penalty for you. Just believe in me. Trust in me. So church, this is who Christ is, right? He is the light of men. He is our light. And we can respond a number of ways. Some of us have already received the light, but we're still kind of holding on to darkness too. Liberty comes when you fully embrace the light. Look, you already know, you already know how, how evil you are, right? You've become aware of that. You've been given spiritual sight to understand that. Why are we, why are we hiding that? Another response for those of us who have already received the light is to recognize that we are not the light. We are merely children of the light. And so we should be pointing people to the light, to Christ. And if you have until this point rejected the light, I just ask you to, to stop. To stop rejecting him. To receive him. And embrace all that he has to offer for you.